Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, the BRICS is inviting six new members to join in a bid to champion global south. Japan starts release of nuclear contaminated water from Fukushima plant. The United States is seeking to extend a scientific and technological agreement with China for six months, and India's aircraft is making has made a historic landing at the south pole of the moon. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. The BRICS has decided to extend membership invitations to six countries, including Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, as well as the United Arab Emirates. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa made the announcement at the BRICS summit in Johannesburg. The six countries will become full members in January 2024. And Chinese President Xi Jinping has called this expansion historic, adding it highlights the resolve of the BRICS to pursue unity and cooperation in a developing world. So joining us now on the line is Dr. He Wenping, Africa expert and a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much、uh, for having me. So, according to South Africa's foreign ministry, actually,、uh, previously some twenty countries have、uh, officially applied to join the BRICS. So, why do you think, with that in mind, it is、uh, these six countries we're talking about here that are being invited for for the moment right now? And what do you think these countries have in common? Ah,、uh, yes. Ah,、uh, this time around, even、uh, as many as six. Countries being invited、uh, into the BRIC club also is a quite a surprise to me, uh, because uh, uh, I, I I wouldn't think、uh, now for the first time this expansion can go as many as six. Before I was thinking maybe around the two or three. So actually,、uh, if we look about、uh, why those six countries being invited, I think a number of uh, uh, elements. Number one, of course, those three,、uh, six countries they are very uh, eager uh, to join. Uh, they have made、uh, quite a lot of campaign and、uh, talked with all these big、uh, these countries, and because you need to get all agree upon from all those five members,、uh, if、uh, anyone among the five saying not agree、uh, with、uh, one or two countries, uh, you know,、uh, becoming the member, and then this uh, uh, joining uh, won't be、uh, happening. So、uh, this is number one. Number two, you see, all those big countries, they are. Uh, coming from different part of the world,、uh, two from Africa continent, another three are from the Middle East,、mm-hmm. and then another one from South America. So which means it keep、uh, dual, you know, location this balance,、uh, because BRICS country now set itself as the platform for global South. So global South coming from different parts of the world. So also the new member as function should also representing the different parts. Afterwards, and finally, those six countries, I think they all showing a very good momentum for their economic development. Because originally,、uh, this BRICS club uh, is uh, shows uh, this emerging con-、uh, this economy、uh, in the global south. So you see, the Egypt、uh, after years of、uh, this uh, uh, stable and、uh, development now is also becoming a hot spot for the foreign investment. Ethiopia. Yeah, in the past twenty years, also enjoyed very high GDP growth rate、uh, in the industrialization process. Actually, even because、mm. a、uh, little China in Africa, yeah, yeah. not just Iran, Saudi Arabia, you know, just Middle East countries, uh, UAE, uh, they are very much potential, are、uh, very rich uh, for their economic、uh, development. Hmm. So some people say the BRICS is an economic coalition of emerging markets. Now, with these new members、um, in the in the near future, as well as a possibility of including much more new members over the longer term into this、uh, grouping, then Professor He, how would you define the role of the BRICS、uh, in the future? Ah,、uh, 
Yes, at the very beginning, BRICS country has been defined as the economic co- co- coalition of those emerging markets. But given the times passed by, uh, BRICS country also expanding uh, their area for cooperation. Uh, like they also talk about how to jointly anti-terror, yeah, how to you know share the common view in terms of uh, all those international security uh, issue and the peace building issue. So their cooperation area not only limited uh, to economic concerns uh, because now the situation internationally has changed so fast. So rich country already uh, regarded themselves as the platform for this global south, uh, for this uh, unity and the cooperation among the global south. And area also cover wide range uh, from economic cooperation and the political mutual trust and also like a culture exchanges and people-to-people exchanges. And after all, it will build up itself uh, as a very strong this, uh, platform for uniting all the global South countries. Hmm. So between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I mean, these two countries are apparently drawing a lot of attention right now. We're already seeing their, you know, we've already seen their landmark uh, rapprochement or reconciliation deal earlier this year brokered by the Chinese government. So when both of these two Middle Eastern powers um, become official members of the BRICS, then, Professor He, how do you think that would that kind of scenario would have an impact on their bilateral ties uh, in return? Oh, yes. I think uh, this uh, uh, together joining as the member of the BRICS will only do the good thing and a positive influence for those two countries, uh, Iran Saudi Arabia, to consolidate uh, their very uh, good momentum for reapproachment uh, earlier, that is from early this year. Because once you are in the same club, uh, like BRICS, and then this BRICS uh, offer, <coughs> offer the platform uh, for mutual understanding among those global South countries. So, which means, even though there are some conflicts, new conflicts or new contradictions coming out between those two countries, and then quickly you will have this mechanism there uh, to play some role to, you know, bring those two together, uh, trying to come out with some solution. Uh, to mitigate uh, those uh, differences. So which means now you come up with a new mechanism to offer uh, somehow we call mediator role or bridge role, whatever. So this is better than now. Uh, before there's no such kind of uh, like a family or like a club. Now you've got one. So that will be very helpful to continue this momentum for two countries to close their ties, uh, turn themselves from uh, both the enemies now becoming friends and brothers. Hmm. So, I mean, the BRICS is arguably a very landmark platform in terms of, you know, seeking or pursuing unity and a cooperation in the global south. Uh, but on the surface, it seems now some other countries elsewhere are also seeking unity and a cooperation. For example, uh, some people say the war in Ukraine has enhanced the Western unity or the unity within NATO. In the meantime, we are also seeing some regional blocs or regional initiatives like Quad, AUKUS, and the so-called trilateral um, alliance between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Recently, they have this uh, summit in Camp David in Washington, D.C., near Washington, D.C., actually. So... Professor He, compared to those um, things, those uh, so-called alliances or initiatives or blocks, do you see any fundamental difference with regard to the um, to the mechanism surrounding the BRICS? Well, I think uh, the biggest uh, fundamental difference uh, between that BRICS mechanism with other, other NATO, part, all cards uh, you just named, uh, just uh, you know now uh, that is. Uh, BRICS not targeting to any third party. They are not saying, oh, there is an enemy there, and the BRICS should unite together and then to fight with this enemy. Uh, you know, the NATO somehow is uh, very strong in the military way, so now they are targeting Russia and then supporting the Ukraine. And they even want to finger in, get the finger in preference into the 
Asian, uh, this uh, Pacific area, this issue. Mm. So they're very much like a Cold War mentality-driven, uh, this uh, military group. And then Quad, Orcas, yeah, all those two, uh, those uh, newly emerged, those, uh, uh, those islands, they also had a third, you know, target. Uh, they want target probably China, and then saying united those countries together, uh, saying uh, China be described as a threat, uh, some kind of threat to the, in their eyes. Now that's why uh, they uh, united together, saying, ah, this is the watching seven them together. Uh, this is the so-called threat. Actually, it's not existing there. But the BRICS mechanism, not mentioning any, uh, even among those five countries, uh, existing one, not mentioning those uh, uh, newly uh, expanded new members. Uh, even like uh, uh, Russia, like China, India. India also the member of the Quad, right? Uh, and uh, so they don't even, uh, you know, say we team up together to against the U.S. or we team up together against the European country or who and who. So they are neutral. Uh, they uh, play the neutral uh, this uh, role and uh, also holding the uh, neutral this uh, objective attitude towards uh, some existing conflict. So the thing in common to summon them together is because they're all from global south. Uh, their priority, uh, this issue, is to develop themselves, uh, to get this anti-poverty mission done. Uh, that's the thing summoning them together. Uh, they don't want to like choose the side to stand with. Uh, this is not good for their general mission. Hmm, definitely. So basically, I think we have witnessed discussions and proposals for many years regarding how to, you know, create a more equitable, more just global governance system. So I guess in this regard, we're increasingly seeing a sign or phenomenon where we're increasingly day by day approaching a turning point in this particular regard. But thank you very much. That was Dr. He Wenping, Africa expert and a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. China's economy has encountered some setbacks. The recovery of some key sectors have fallen short of market expectations. As the property market is experiencing a prolonged depression, some people are looking to a swan song for the world's second-largest economy. Is the Chinese economy really crashing? What needs to be done to solidify the country's growth? Get the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge on all major podcast platforms and CGTN Radio. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. China has suspended imports of Japanese aquatic products after Japan started to release nuclear-contaminated water from Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The Chinese foreign ministry has condemned the release, saying this particular issue is by no means a private matter for Japan. The release is coming 12 years after a devastating earthquake and tsunami triggered a meltdown of nuclear reactors at the plant. The plant's operator tried to cool down the reactors using seawater, which became contaminated with radioactive nucleates. And Japan's regional neighbors, as well as some of the local fishing industry, have all expressed serious concerns about the safety of pumping 1.3 million tons of the contaminated water into the sea. Now, CGTN has composed a new song on this issue titled "Let the Waste Out." Let's take a listen to a clip first. The earthquake occurred on the island here. Destroying everything far and near. The nuclear station was seriously hit. A lot of radiation to be treated. The water's cooling down the reactor core, contaminating with the system and more. So many big tanks along the shore. Now it's a time for me to clear the store. Not waste all the love. Not waste out and everybody shout. Not waste out and not waste out. Contaminated water makes more shout. 
That was a clip of uh, Let the Waste Out, a new song composed by CGTN regarding Japanese release of nuclear contaminated water into the ocean. And by the way, you can check out the entire song on X, namely Twitter's new name, at CGTN Radio. So joining us on this particular issue on the line is Dr. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations with East China Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. So uh, do you think uh, China has taken a responsible um, action by suspending Japanese aquatics um, you know, products? Actually, we're not only talking about the Chinese mainland here. Hong Kong, for example, has also banned seafood imports from nine Japanese prefectures and Tokyo. Uh, seafood from the the remaining parts of Japan is allowed into the Hong Kong market, but they will need to undergo some kind of um, uh, radio radiological tests before they can be supplied. Well, the ban is reasonable for three reasons. Um, um, first, we really don't know if seafood will be affected by the release. We do know that even before the release in areas near the plant, there were already unacceptable uh, radi- uh, radiation levels in some sea life. So it's wise to be cautious. And you know, separate from the mainland, Hong Kong will require testing, uh, as you noted. And you know, that's that's feasible for a relatively small market like Hong Kong, although it will surely add cost and further encourage buyers to seek alternatives. But the mainland market is too big and uneven in its development to ensure adequate testing. Second, you know, over the past decade plus, China has consistently raised its standards on food security. And a key area of concern uh, uh, for the Chinese people has been to make sure that, that their food is safe. Consequently, the government needs to demonstrate to its citizens that it's protecting their health, even if it's an overabundance of caution. And third, China and other countries are rather limited in terms of the mechanisms they have for stopping Japan from going forward with this release. Nevertheless, many Chinese, others in Asia, the South Pacific, and around the world are frustrated by this plan. And while it would be wrong to describe this ban as punitive in nature, many will embrace it as Japan getting at least some of what it deserves even if Japanese fishermen are unfairly uh, forced to bear the brunt of it. Mm. So one thing we have um, kept hearing from uh, Japan or the Japanese government is that the dose of tritium, this remaining radioactive substance in the contaminated water, will be less than one-seventh of the World Health Organization's drinking water standard. So with that in mind, why do you think we are seeing so much opposition to this particular release, not only from these um, you know, sovereign countries, but also from the local fishing industry? Well, many are questioning whether the World Health Organization standards are robust enough Uh, But more importantly, the greater worry is whether the Japanese government and TEPCO have been honest in their testing and disposal plans. Now, this disaster has already released a great deal of nuclear material into the sea and the atmosphere. And the decision, the decision to dump the wastewater means even more nuclear material will be released. Nevertheless, TEPCO and the Japanese government say we can trust them this time. Now, we were told previously by the company that the wastewater was safe to release, but then it was retested and discovered that it needed to be cleaned again. Now, we should question whether it's truly safe now, whether the right standards and procedures were employed, and we should question what kind of uh, as yet unknown impacts it will have on the environment. We should also question uh, why there hasn't been more transparency on alternative solutions. You know, in fact, given the history of this plant uh, from 1971 when it was built and up to the present day, there have always been serious questions about corporate negligence and inadequate government oversight and even allegations of complicity between the two. Now, this is even been acknowledged by the Japanese government uh, government itself. So it's quite reasonable that a lot of people are not persuaded about this release plan. Um, uh, you know, after all the previous mistakes and what some uh, what have some uh, what some have described as a willful disregard of safety, why should anyone be confident the company and government government are finally doing uh, the right thing now? Hmm. So supporters of uh, supporters of the release say. This decision is um, supported by International Atomic Energy Agency and many other nuclear or uh, radioactive experts. 
But frankly speaking,、um, Professor, in your observation, do you think there is absolute consensus or agreement in the scientific community on this particular issue? Is there any prominent mainstream scientific organization that is、uh, publicly, you know, opposing to the opposing this particular release? Well, the International Atomic Energy Agency is part of the United Nations, but critics contend that it's compromised,、uh, in so much as it's an agency that supports nuclear energy. And there are some leading scientists and scientific organizations around the world who fundamentally reject the premise that any nuclear energy is safe. Now, some leading、uh, scientists in Japan、uh, and likewise the United States have argued. Uh, that the principle of dilution as a means for ensuring the waste does not remain in a toxic form cannot be assured in the aquatic life exposed to the outflows. Now we've already seen the potential for bioaccumulation of radionuclides in marine life near the plant, and we don't know what the future will bring as releases continue over a long period of time. Consequently, we've seen objections to the release raised by the Kualo Marine Laboratory at the University of Hawaii, and more broadly by the U.S.-based National Association of Marine Laboratories.、Hmm. So this is actually、uh, this question is actually、uh, related to a point you raised earlier.、Um, you know, judging from the release and the way that this particular decision has been made. Uh, do you think the livelihoods of those the local fishermen, of many other people who are working in the local fishing industry, as well as some of the closely interconnected industries, matters in the eyes of、um, Japan's decision makers? We have to assume that the Japanese government government does care about the impact on its seafood industry,、um, and that the cost、uh, to this industry may prove substantial. And yet, they've chosen to endure these costs because they must be concerned that finding an alternative solution within Japan itself would be even costlier. Now, this is what should raise. Our eyebrows, in part, and let's be clear: the total cleanup time associated with Fukushima, including water releases, is expected to take 40 years. That means the Chinese mainland might not be consuming Japanese seafood for the next four decades. That's a huge price for Japan to pay.、Mm. So, in a bigger picture, if we talk about this issue from a perspective of geopolitical lens or Uh, international relations.、Um, to what extent do you think this this controversial release on Japan's part will damage、um, Japanese international reputation or image? Japan is at a crossroads, or, or perhaps stuck at one.、Uh, it's been unable to solve its middle income trap, been unable to establish an independent foreign policy, unable to provide sufficiently for its own national security, and it keeps kowtowing、uh, to Washington, which,、uh, by the way, appears to support、uh, the Fukushima release as part of its efforts to keep Japan in line with America's containment policies against China. Now, Japan was once seen as a rising and responsible power, but that's Less the case today. Of course, the whole Fukushima disaster, which was triggered by a natural disaster, but actually caused by irresponsible government and corporate actions, has already been a black eye on Japan's image. But the point we need to remember here is that、um, that, that dumping this water is just the first part of a difficult cleanup. There are even bigger challenges coming over the next 30 to 40 years as、uh, as Japan tries to clean up the damaged reactor. So we're going to be talking about these problems. For the rest of our lives,、uh, let's just hope Fukushima doesn't play a role in shortening how long we live. Yeah, so I guess、uh, going forward, we will probably see some lawsuits, international lawsuits or litigation. But I guess at the moment, that's a wild guess. But thank you very much. That was、uh, Professor Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations, was East China Normal University. More to come. The United States is seeking to extend a scientific and tech agreement with China for six more months, and a spacecraft launched by India has made a historic landing at the south pole of the moon. If you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at or now named as X at CGTN Radio. 
We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The U.S. is seeking a six-month extension to a decades-old science and technological agreement with China. The landmark deal was signed when Beijing and Washington established their diplomatic ties back in 1979. It is renewed every five years, and the current term is set to expire on Sunday. The U.S. State Department says the short-term extension will allow Washington to undergo some sort of negotiations with Beijing to strengthen this particular pact. However, it has added that it does not commit the United States to a long-term extension. This deal has led to China and the United States cooperating across a range of scientific and technical fields, despite their geopolitical tensions. So, joining us now on the line is Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Ina.、Oh, my pleasure, Jane. So, first of all, how do you think both the United States and China have benefited from this particular deal we are talking about today over the years? Well, I'll give you specific examples. For instance, there was a large-scale study in China、uh, that revealed the crucial role of folic acid supplements in reducing the risk of spina bifida and other neural tube defects.、Uh, There was also a cooperation with the Environmental Protection Agency that、uh, reduced local air pollution in China, which、uh, was not just staying in China; it was being blown across the Pacific and the Blanketing Bay and、uh, West Coast. And through、um, study, through the data that was gathered in China, they were able to enhance、uh, influenza、uh, mm-hmm. developments,、uh, the annual flu vaccines worldwide. So there have been many things, but above and beyond that. Uh, what you've had is a、uh, open discussion between intellectuals. Many, many、uh, science and research papers that have been done in China, been done in the U.S., have been exchanged, and it's furthered knowledge. So, it's really hard to calculate just how far we are. I can guarantee you that we would not be as far as we are in medicine and and technology without that exchange. Yeah, sometimes、uh, when you know when somebody goes too far. We need to look retrospectively upon the starting point, you know. But in your observation, what is the prospect of a long-term extension of this particular deal? We understand, actually, due to some political reasons or anti-China sentiment,、uh, Republicans are nowadays overwhelmingly calling for this deal to be scrapped. And actually, earlier this week, a few Republican members of the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on China have proposed a bill seeking to require congressional notification for any such deal with China to be signed or extended. So, what is your observation? Well, I mean, the congressional notification is not control.、Um, you know, foreign policy is controlled by the executive.、Um, what they're trying to do is send a signal、uh, that the Republicans are tougher on China than the、uh, than the Democrats. Um, it's not clear to me why they're saying in advance that they want a six-month extension、uh, to renegotiate.、Uh, this has been, as I said, it's been since 1979. It's not a surprise. It comes about、uh, fairly regularly.、Um, but I think it's just posturing.、Uh, it's all about the, the presidential elections that are coming up and how to do that. It's not clear whether the Biden administration was actually trying to save this. Uh, it would have been smarter for them to just quietly、uh, renew it、uh, without any fanfare.、But、now they've made it into a political football. Very doubtful that it would be renewed on exactly the same terms.、Um, Washington has been reacting well and with、um, all sorts of、uh, punitive measures against China,、uh, not allowing、uh, U.S. investment in、uh, Chinese tech companies, that denying chips to China, denying chip making equipment to China. Uh, basically, harassing Chinese、uh, students and also professors, they say are potentially all spies and things like that. So things are very、uh, bad. If this thing does not go through, what it does is it represents another big brick in the wall of、uh, in the tech wall between these two countries.、Mm. So actually, regarding some Republican lawmakers' opposition to、uh, any extension of this particular deal. 
One example they are talking about,、uh, I saw from media reports, is that in back in 2018, under this deal, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Back then, organized a project、uh, working with China's Meteorological Administration to jointly launch、uh, some instrumented balloons to study the atmosphere, which they say was why we saw this balloon incident between the U.S. and China earlier this year. What is your thought about this when you read this, Ina? Well, it's fairly ridiculous. I mean. Let's look at it. You know, balloons have been around,、uh, been used、uh, by humankind for 350 years. The idea that、uh, China needs to、uh, use balloons to gather information, you know, given the number of satellites that they have,、uh, the fact that you can hack into almost anything, and that's proven by the fact that the U.S. has hacked into everything.、Uh, so, I mean, it's 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 kind of comical. You know, this idea that you know China's floating balloons all over the place. It was really just a reaction to the fact that that Blinken had not received a invitation to China, and he came up with an excuse and used these balloons.、Uh, but it, it's it's pure nonsense. Yes, there are instruments within weather balloons that can be dual use if you're measuring air currents and you're looking at top topography of the land, etc. Yes, you're scanning things. But that's very different from gathering uh, real-time uh, uh, actionable intelligence, which is、uh, what the U.S. is trying to say.、Mm. So, what do you think could be the consequences if this deal is eventually scrapped?、Um, in particular, from the U.S. perspective,、uh, what do you think the U.S. will end up losing because of that kind of scenario? Well, let, let's be clear. Chi- China has said that they want the STA to be renewed.、Mm. Uh, last month,、uh, speaking at the Aspen Security Forum, China's ambassador to the U.S. Xi Feng said renewing the agreement would be a small but concrete way to start improving relations between the two countries.、Uh, there's a huge trust deficit, and right now you, you see many Americans on both sides of the aisle crawling down this rabbit hole of you know fear and paranoia. That somehow China is out to get them, when in fact it's China,、uh, U.S. aggression,、um, sailing warships up and down the Taiwan Straits,、uh, this tech war, unilateral sanctions, breaking treaties, starting wars, etc., etc. That is really the problem.、Um, but you know, if if it does happen, it, it's as I said, it's another. Huge part of this wall that is going up between the U.S. and China、uh, in terms of technology.、Uh, for China, it's not going to matter in the long run or even the intermediate run. China is is going full blast on terms of replacing anything that they have previously got from the West.、But、that means the West is going to lose those markets, and those not markets are not replaceable. So, this idea that、uh, somehow that、uh, the U.S. is taming China and putting China in place, actually, it's a, a fear victory where the U.S. is going to suffer more than China does over the long term.、Hmm. Thank you very much for your honest analysis. That was Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the World Today. In my opinion, the World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In the World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. India's Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft has landed on the lunar South Pole. That was India's second attempt to land a spacecraft on the moon. Back in 2019, the Indian space research organization's Chandrayaan-2 mission successfully deployed an orbiter. However, its lander crashed. The spacecraft is now expected to remain functional for two weeks. Running a series of experiments, including analysis of the mineral composition of the lunar surface. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Ying earlier spoke with Dr. Zhang Fan, associate professor of astronomy with Beijing Normal University. How significant is India's landing on the moon's south pole? Right.、Um, so, 
this is the first time that uh, a probe from Earth actually uh, got to the South Pole. Uh, and the reason why that's significant is because that's the uh, site chosen for uh, for a lot of other nations as well to, uh, to establish permanent presence in the form of research stations on the moon. So having a survey of the uh, surrounding environment is, is quite important. So this... Uh, this Indian probe would be the would be the first one there doing that job, and also quite importantly for the Indian space program, uh, it, it's very commendable that they continue doing this uh, this Chandra Chandrayaan three mission after the failure of the Chandrayaan two mission in 2019. So they didn't uh, sort of back down and, and just go home crying. They sort of pushed forward and continued continued on, and now it paid off, and, and it was very uh, very significant feat uh, that. Okay, so what are the challenges and complexities of soft landing in this particular region of the moon? Right. So for, first of all, it, it's uh, it's the South Pole. So once you uh, you launch something into the uh, lunar transfer orbit, and and then it, it enters the lunar orbit, the natural position is is an orbit around the equator of the moon. Um, so you need to do extra sort of maneuvers to get to the South Pole, but that's not too difficult. Um, and then there are other issues. For example, um, is the South Pole region. If you look from Earth, um, you're not looking directly at it, um, so you can't use powerful telescopes on Earth to be able to tell the tell you much detail about the terrain uh, of where you're landing. So you have to rely on sort of um, other probes around the Moon, flying already there, to tell you the the situation. The the, the, the the, the landing site uh, conditions on the moon and and the earlier mission uh, Chandrayaan two although the landing failed they had a probe that that was successful in in terms of uh, sending back images that that is needed for this mission. Yeah, and, and does the lunar day night cycle also present some kind of challenge for missions on the moon? Because as we know, a lunar day is equivalent to twenty eight Earth days. Uh, that's mostly a challenge. If they want to, if they want to go to the back of the moon, the Indians didn't do this uh, for this mission. Uh, the China is, is the one, the only one that, that actually did go to the back of the moon. The uh, the the problem is having the um, uh, each lunar day being essentially a month on Earth is is because that way the it's only one side of the moon always facing Earth. Um, so essentially, not only can not see directly the other side, communicating with the other side, uh, the backside of the moon becomes really difficult. So you need to send a sort of a, a, a signal relay satellite further into a so-called L2 point, further away uh, than the moon to, to serve as an intermediate to transfer back signals. So that's what China did. But this time, uh, the, for the South Pole, you don't have to do that. Okay. So what are the main objectives of this mission? Right. So first of all, it, it's is to this technology demonstration to be able to show that you have the, uh, the, the technology to actually go there, uh, land there, and then the rover can actually move around on the moon. Uh, so that's the first step for any follow-on missions uh, that that the Indian Space Agency would have uh, in mind. Uh, and then there's also the uh, study of the uh, of the conditions in the uh, in the South Pole regions. So they will analyze the soil, uh, analyze the uh, water content in the soil. And those kind of information will be will be quite useful, not just for the Indian missions, uh, but also for, for all the other uh, nations' missions. Yeah, so the, the South Pole is believed to contain higher concentrations of water ice in its shadowed craters. So how might the scientific findings in, in this region impact our understanding of the solar system and also the potential uh, for sustainable explorations? Right. Um, so the reason why you have uh, water ice um, in the South Pole is because when you're in the polar region, just like on the, in the polar region on Earth, the uh, sun is, is very low on the horizon. So if you have a really deep crater, the sun wouldn't be able to shine down to the bottom of that crater because of the angle being so shallow. Uh, that means if there are asteroids in the past that brought water to the moon and some of the, that, that, that ice, that water ice, got deposited at the bottom of those craters, uh, then the uh, ice can, can essentially stay there forever. 
being able to avoid sunlight. So that's the, the main source, main source for uh, for future missions. If you want to go there and establish sort of a permanent base, uh, then you need water. Um, this mission, the Indian mission, wouldn't be able to get down to the bottom of a of the equator, uh, unfortunately, because that requires substantial mobility, um, which would be very difficult. They only have a small rover with six wheels, uh, so you can imagine that little thing, that little robot is not going to be able to climb steep hills that, that well, and then you can't really fly uh, with a helicopter like you do on Mars, because there's really no atmosphere on, on the moon, so you have, some, you have to have something more substantial to be able to, to explore the bottom of those those craters, but nevertheless, um, having a rover going around, just surveying the surrounding areas, see what kind of uh, past impact uh, by asteroids that ha- might have happened, uh, that gives you a rough idea of you know how much water there might be down there. Uh, also, others sort of uh, uh, the soil soil quality would also tell you whether you can use three D printing, for example, to build structures on the moon to shield you, to shield future astronauts from, uh, say, solar radiation or other harmful stuff from space. Um, so all of that will be, uh, will be quite important for the, uh, for the sustainable acceleration of the moon in the future. And in terms of learning the solar history, um, you know, water is not an abundant thing in the inner solar system where we have, uh, which goes all the way up to Mars. Um, at the beginning, of when the sun first got ignited, um, it pushes all the uh, all the lighter elements, hydrogen, water stuff included, into the outer systems, into near Jupiter. That's why there's a lot of water out there. Um, so the ocean we have here, uh, they're all from sort of other water, ice, asteroid stuff coming in. Um, so by studying sort of water residuals on the moon. Um, in general, tells you a lot more about how this process happens, you know, um, and, th- and this is not a, a sort of set in stone, well-established knowledge yet. So, so there's a lot to learn. How do you look at the global interest and competition in lunar exploration? And what do you make of the prospect of international cooperation and partnerships for further um, advancements in space research? Um, the global interest is, is obviously really good uh, because some healthy competition, healthy means you, you, you're trying to outdo each other by being better than, than other people, uh, rather than unhealthy competition uh, where you try to trip others over and, and try to hinder others and, and the progress of human race as a whole. Um, so healthy competition is really good, um, and especially in terms of explorations. And that's how a lot of the space agencies get their funding for lunar or Mars uh, explorations. But there's the problem that when it comes to scientific research, which we would really like to do on the moon. moon the moon is, is a fantastic site for, for astronomy and for, uh, for geological studies. Um, it's, it's pretty much the only celestial body we can get to with any ease uh, in the near future. So for science to go ahead, you really need collaboration because, you know, in each specific area, scientific area, there's only so many people in the world, and they're all spread across different countries. And if you set up walls in between the scientists, not let them talk to each other, then uh, the, the scientific instrumentation would be hindered quite severely. Dr. Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Astronomy with Beijing Normal University, talking to my colleague Zhao Ying. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Brazil has made a proposal to Argentina looking to secure Chinese yuan guarantees for Brazilian exports to the neighboring country. 
Under this particular proposal, a Brazilian state-run bank would oversee the conversion of yuan back into the Brazilian's own currency. Argentina is Brazil's third biggest trading partner. It is suffering from an economic crisis featuring soaring inflation and dwindling central bank reserves. And amid Argentina's dollar shortage, Chinese yuan guarantees are seen to be able to provide security to Brazilian companies concerning their sales receipts. So joining us now on the line is Liu Zhiqing, senior fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So first of all,、um, Dr. Liu, can you、uh, help us understand? Can you help explain to our audiences how how exactly such a proposed mechanism would work in terms of、um, Brazilians' exports to Argentina? Actually, such proposal is very important and also very、uh, clever decision,、uh, in my opinion. But from the operational principle, I think this is a very usual that practice internationally. But the difference is that we don't use these other currencies like U.S. dollar and like euro,、uh, but we use the Chinese renminbi. This is the only difference because in trade business there's a trade financing or trade refinancing.、Mm. From both sides, we need exporter and the importer to have agreement which currency could be as a guarantee from accepted by both sides. So from the operational Manner, I think there's no big difference when we use that the Chinese renminbi yuan as a guarantee to make this transaction more safer, more smoothly, and more sustainable. So I think normally we do that. That China will issue a letter of guarantee、mm. to the importer.、Yeah. We say that if something happened, that the Chinese renminbi will be used as a A metal、uh, of the payment, of course, within the facilities and the limitation that accepted by both sides, and also will give a letter of guarantee that to the exporter that if the Argentina cannot be、uh, obligated to pay, that the Chinese renminbi yuan can be used temporarily as a guarantee to pay to the exporter. That means from both sides, importer and exporter are in save. From、mm-hmm. the importer, that they are saved, that they can get when they paid money, then that they can get products from the exporter. From the exporter, they are sure that when they export the product to Argentina, they will get the money back. But in renminbi yuan, but also the converted is very simple. If accepted by both sides, or according to a Uh, 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 a reasonable exchange rate. I think all these uh, uh, problems can be solved without any difficulties.、Mm. So, why do you think,、um, on the part of the Brazilians,、uh, Brazil has chosen the Chinese currency in this particular proposal? And do you think、um, Argentina is ever going to accept this proposal? I think from both sides they understand the value of the Chinese renminbi yuan、uh, since ten years because the Chinese renminbi yuan, in first hand, is the one one、uh, currency that、uh, in basket currencies accepted by the IMF. So this is a very important、uh, priority that accepted by these countries, especially by the developing countries. All these、uh, the money currencies in the basket in IMF we call the SDR, the currencies that can be、uh, used as a national reserve. If this money can be regarded as a re- national reserve or internationally, that could be very high uh, 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 respected and also very high stable、uh, stabilizing value. So. On both sides, I think they know this is a very important precondition that the Chinese renminbi yuan can make the、uh, guarantee. And secondly, also in the market itself, that the Chinese renminbi yuan has already increased its portion and business uh, uh, volume uh, in international trading 
finance and the payment and the transaction. That means uh, its uh, value is very stable and accepted as a high reputation that regularly will be accepted by the international business community. Mm. So, in a bigger picture, in your observation, to what extent do you think this particular proposal is pointing to a de-dollarization trend across the world today? Of course, you know, earlier we saw the Argentina's, uh, Argentina's government announce a plan to pay back as part of its IMF Long using the Chinese renminbi, right? But uh, compared to that decision, do you think this particular proposal has that big uh, of a uh, significance? I think this is really play a very significant uh, role in international transaction. This is not a single case, but it will be regularly accepted by the international business community. As, as we should say that all these transactions, they have the the similar priority is the security. Because as we know that in the past five or six years that the other reserve currencies have more turbulence and more troubles with these transactions. But I have to say here that our practice for Brazil and for Argentina, for any developing countries, is not aimed to any other third countries or third currencies. That means that the use of the renminbi yuan as the guarantee of in transaction does not mean that we are going to push the so-called de-dollarization because we hope to have a equal, have a fairness, have an inclusive competition or cooperation with each other, even between the currencies. So that means our practice is really try to give more opportunities and channels for international transactions, especially for those that uh, developing countries, they have less currency uh, dollar reserve, they don't have enough uh, uh, foreign currency uh, power that to support their business. So in this way, that uh, Chinese yuan should be very good and ideal alternative for many countries. So we hope that this practice can make more uh, successful experiences for all other countries. Mm. Thank you very much for putting that into perspective. That was Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. Thank you very much for joining us. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Bye for now.